All right, go with me. Go with me to the Lord in prayer right now. Let's ask the Lord for help. Father, thank you again for your word, your precious word. And God, we come as a people that need to hear from you, Lord, because we have no wisdom. We need your help, God, because we have no strength. So please, God, as we come to your word, feed us, Lord. Give us your voice. Your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. We believe that, God, breathed out by you. So, Lord, let your living and active word, let it land on our souls this morning. Please, God, please help us. Incline our ears to hear. You said that if we incline our ears to hear and apply our hearts to knowledge, if we cry out for discernment, that we call out for it, you said that we would gain understanding and fear of you. So please give us that this morning, God. We call out for wisdom. We call out for, for help from you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, before we get to our text, you see we're in Genesis 19, verse 30 through 38. But let me say a few things before we even get to uh, this text of Scripture. Uh, we at Grace Community Church, most people know, most of you know this, but we at this church, we are a devoted people to expositional preaching of the Word of God. And I feel, I feel compelled to tell you that today because under God's sovereignty, we are at a very interesting passage of Scripture to say the least. In fact, I do, like, like we often do, I, I read the passage, uh, usually to my, my kids, my family, I read the passage the night before that we're going to go through on that particular Sunday, whether I'm teaching or not. And I read this passage to my kids last night, and they said, what are you going to preach from that? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, thanks for the encouragement. I went back to my office, and I tried to figure out what I was going to preach for this time. <laughs> so we're devoted we're devoted to expositional preaching of God's Word. And this is one of those passages that seriously, I mean, I, I know, I've heard of families that if they gather up night after night to read the Bible to their kids, they literally have skipped over this passage because I'm kind of afraid that the kids might ask some questions that you don't want to have to answer. Okay, and so this is one of those kind of passages. So why are we a people devoted to the expositional preaching of God's Word? Why are we like that? Why, why do we decide to be that way? And I'll tell you this, it's not because we just consider all of our options and we thought here's several different methods, methods of preaching and we think this will be best for our church. That's not the reason. Okay, We didn't just consider our option and think this might be a good choice. We picked this method of expositional preaching. So the reason we do this is because we believe that this is biblical. It's actually biblical to preach God's word as the gathered local church like this. Now, I don't have time to completely uh, unpack all of the reasons that we believe that at Grace Community Church, but just a couple things quickly. In Acts 2.42, it says that those people in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. So the apostles wrote God-breathed words, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. So we believe that the way we do the same is we devote ourselves to to the apostles doctrine by devoting ourselves to the exposing of what they wrote to the exposition of God's word. In other words, we're not devoting ourselves to a pastor's favorite topics or to a, whatever intuitions happen to be on a pastor that week. But we want to be a people devoted to the word of God. First Peter 4:13. the leader of the church there is told to give yourself to the reading. So read it to the teaching and to the exhortation. Read the text, teach the text, exhort from the text. We are people devoted to God's Word. We believe that it's God-breathed, every single bit of it. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And a little bit later it says, Preach that Word. Preach that Word. So we're people absolutely devoted to preaching the word like that. I believe so much of, of, uh, of modern preaching today, it begins with man's problems. What's man's problems? And let's just try to bend the Bible to meet man's problems. That's a man-centeredness. 
But a God-centered way to go after this is we believe we just start with God. We start with His Word and we say what's here from His Word. Expose what's there and we bow down to the book because God is worthy of our obedience and of our worship. So this is expositional preaching of God's Word. And so I want everybody here to be absolutely convinced of that, that little, this little uh, introductory remark here. I want you to be absolutely convinced of that. So much so that when you leave from here, when you, when you, uh, if you have to move to another city or move to another, pl- another place and you're looking for a local church there, that the expositional preaching of God's Word is a non-negotiable for you, that if they're not preaching the Word, I don't want to be there. I want it to be that, I want you to be that convinced about the expositional preaching of God's Word. Now one benefit of that is a pastor or preacher cannot skip hard texts of Scripture. They can't skip uh, uh, hard truths and just say whatever they want to say, but they got to say what's in the book, right? And so that's what we're devoted to week in and week out, which brings us to Genesis chapter 19. We'll see a, an uncomfortable text today, an uncomfortable text of Scripture in Genesis 19, verse 30 through 38. Look at verse 30 with me. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father's old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him. That we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger. Behold, I lay last, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him. That we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Moab. Ben-Ami, he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. I think you see why I say this is an uncomfortable passage of Scripture. I saw this morning, this is my uncle's first time to hear me preach. Welcome to <laughs> this passage of Scripture. <laughs> uh, but this is God's Word to us this morning from Genesis 19, verse 30 through 38. Now what I want to do is I want to help you see this being broken down into... Pretty much three categories. Very quickly, I want to talk about this. The first, the first section you see here is just verse 30. And what we see in verse 30 is Lot and his, and his two daughters being moved by fear. They're being moved by fear. And so what we see is Lot and his two daughters. If you remember, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, they landed in Zoar. That's where they landed. Okay, And now they have moved to the hills, it says, into a cave. So they moved out of Zoar into the hills. And into a cave, and there dwells Lot and his two daughters. Now, why did they leave? Why did they leave Zoar and go to the hills and live in a cave? It says right here, and he was afraid. He was afraid. If you remember, fear is what took them to Zoar in the beginning. They were afraid and didn't didn't listen to God's first word to them. And they were afraid. And now fear has taken them out of Zoar and into the hills. He's afraid. Lot was full of sinful fear. He's full of the fear of man. He's full of the fear of circumstances. Not not that good fear of the fear of God, but he was full of a sinful fear. Now, why was it sinful? Why was it sinful? So, So if somebody has fear of man that they're dealing with, if they have fear, what are they lacking? What are they lacking if they have they have fear of man or fear of their circumstances? What are they lacking? Confidence in who? In God. Trust in God. This is a lack of trust in God, of believing in Him. This is a sinful fear that they're not trusting their God. 
So I think one thing we can take from that is that faith sets us free from fear. Faith sets us free. Faith in God sets us free from fear. You think about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember them? Those guys were, uh, they had every reason to be afraid, right? They're about to be tossed into a burning, fiery furnace and die a gruesome death. And they look at the one that's going to toss them in there and say, look, our God can deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we ain't bound down to you. Fear, you can be set free from fear by faith in God. And Lot was lacking. The next section, verses 31 through 35 we see an evil and despicable plan being executed right here. Okay? Now I want to speak about it carefully and summarize it carefully for all the ears that are here. But basically what you see is you see two daughters that devise a plan to get their father drunk and then sleep with him so that they can have children by their father. And this evil plan is executed successfully two nights in a row. This evil plan is executed successfully two nights in a row. In a row. And so in this passage, in this evil plan, we see drunkenness. We see Lot walking in drunkenness. This is a sin that is absolutely condemned by God. If you go look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21, it mentions a list of sins. And in those sins, it has this sin, which is drunkenness. And it's listed alongside adultery and fornication and, 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 and envy and strife and many other sins. And it says this about drunkenness, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God in Galatians 5. It is a sin condemned by God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you see the same thing. Drunkenness is put forward as a sin that if, if, a, if a brother or sister in the church continues to walk in the sin, that they're to be disciplined out or excommunicated from the church. Drunkenness is a sin condemned by God. And just as a side note, I think our generation could use a warning about this sin. I really believe that. I think it almost seems like in some generations past, the way that, that uh, this sin may have been dealt with wasn't completely right. As a complete like, you know what, all wine is bad, all alcohol altogether is bad. It's wrong just to even touch it, just to sip it. I think that's the way it's been dealt with in the past, which is not biblical in any sense. But what I, what I believe we need a warning for is sometimes there's a swing into the other ditch, right? Where you don't feel the warning of something that the Bible actually warns about. So, for example, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and those who are led astray by them are not wise. And I say that because I believe in this generation, what I've seen over and over again is a very lightheartedness, jokingness, maybe as a, a, a response to, to some wrong things in the past, but just a, a lightheartedness about that subject and not a seriousness about putting up guards for ourselves, okay? So it's not wrong to necessarily to, to drink wine or, or alcohol in of itself, but it is true that it can be a mocker and it can be a brawler and it can lead you astray. And you're not wise if you're led astray by, by drink into drunkenness. Now, the other sin we see here is a sexual sin. We see incest as a sin here in this, in this uh, plan of these two daughters. It's also a sin that's condemned by God. You can go read Leviticus 18, and it is condemned by God. You can read 1 Corinthians 5 again. And a man is actually told to be excommunicated from the church for this sin, this sexual sin of incest. Now, did the two daughters know? Did they know that it was a sinful action what they were doing? And I think absolutely they knew. That's the reason why they thought they had to get their dad drunk before they walked in this. Third section here, quickly, verse 36 through 38, we see the results or the consequences of this evil plan being executed. We see both daughters in verse 36 uh, have become pregnant by their father. That's the result. Both of the daughters became pregnant by their father. And then we see that the two children that come from this sinful union are Moab and Ben-Ami. And, and they become, these two figureheads, they become the people that we read about throughout the rest of the Bible called the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now we'll talk more about them in a little while. But this is the fruit. This is the, this is the results or the consequences of this sinful union. The Moabites and the Ammonites come out of this union. Now, this is the last episode that we see in Lot's life. We read about Lot's life from Genesis 13 and on, or really from Genesis 
11 and on. We've read about his life here and there. And this is the last episode of his life. Now, if we read Genesis 13 through 18, we already know the disastrous sin that this man has walked in. We already know that. But when we get to this last episode that's given to us, it, it puts an added uh, despicableness to the sin. It, it puts an added uh, realness to the depth that sin took him to when you read this last episode of his life. You see that? It shows us the depth. Now, this last scene, I think it's intended. If, if Lot's life is meant to be a warning for us, and I believe that it is. I'm going to show that in a minute. If Lot's life is intended to be a warning for us against sin, then this last episode of his life is meant to place seriousness on that warning and urgency on that warning. Look at the depths that sin took him to. And this is the last thing we see about Lot's life. So let's go to the, the, this warning the warning of Lot's life. And what I mean by that is we need to be warned. We need to be warned about sin. And Lot's life is put before us as a warning against sin. Okay, now let me, let me read something to you because I don't want you to think I'm just making that up. We need to be warned about sin. And Lot's life stands for us, especially in this last episode, as a warning against sin. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, he's talking about these people in the Old Testament. With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples. Listen to it. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. You see the example being put forward. Let me keep reading. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were in the Old Testament. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Those examples. Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did. Verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down. We have them written for us. For, for our warning, for our admonition, for our instruction. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the idea of these verses. There's Lot's life is meant to be an example to us of, of why we should flee sin. Why we should be warned about sin. So let's walk down that path. First thing I want you to see is his confusing and contradicting life. Okay? Literally, as we were reading, as I'm reading that to my kids, and, they, and they've, they've uh, heard me read all the way through Genesis, you know, as we've come through this as a church. And as they've heard that, you know, my, my son asked me last night, is, is, is Lot, is he, is he going to be in heaven? Is he a Christian? And man, he has such a contradicting life that, that I have a Bible verse that tells me yes. And yet I'm looking at this contradicted, confusing life and going, man, it almost hurts me to tell him that. Because it's a confused life. So if you look at, at Lot's life, on the one hand, he is a believer with some believer qualities. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, at three times it calls him a righteous man or a righteous soul. So he's a righteous man. And yet, and he has these believer qualities that he seems to be uh, have a distaste for sin. That all that sin that he's seeing ar around him, it, it puts a, a bad taste in his mouth. He doesn't like the sin that he sees around him. These are believer qualities to, to have a disgust in some ways for sin. Well, Lot had some of that. Lot had some of that. We also see Lot seems to be a man of faith alongside Abraham at certain places in Genesis. We see, uh, we see Lot risking his life to... to, uh, to to show love and hospitality to those two angels in Genesis 19. In the early verse of Genesis 19. We see him showing love and hospitality. Even risking his life for them. These are believer qualities that we see here. That's on one hand. But on the other hand. We see him making worldly and foolish decisions about where to plant his family. As he plants them in Sodom. We see him showing despicable disregard for his daughters. He doesn't care, he's not caring about their purity and even their life. We see him doing that. We see him slow to obey and slow to trust. J.C. Ryle described him as lingering Lot. 
Because the Bible says in Genesis 19 that he lingered. God gave a command and he lingered. He's a lingering lot. This is what we see about this guy. And here we see him in Genesis 19 in our verses. We see him plastered drunk to the point of walking in, almost inadvertently walking in, incestuous sin. He has a confusing and contradicting life. Now, go to the next thing, the sinfulness of sin. I think in Lot's life we see the sinfulness of sin. Of sin. Listen to J.C. Ryle from his book called Holiness. Listen. I am convinced that the first step towards attaining a higher standard of holiness is to realize more fully the sinfulness of sin. So how do we how do we uh, grow as a church to be more holy, to be more like Christ? Well, one thing, first step, J.C. Ryle says, is we got to see the sinfulness of sin. And I believe Lot's life helps us see, especially in these final verses, the sinfulness of sin. Now, I'm getting that phrase sinfulness of sin from Romans chapter seven. In verse 13, Romans 7, 13, where it speaks about the law, that the law came that sin might become exceedingly sinful. That sin might become uh, uh, utterly sinful, one version says. This is sinfulness of sin. Did you get the sinfulness of sin? And God gave His law to help you see that sin is not just a light thing, it's the sinfulness of sin. And the idea here is that you can have shallow views of sin. We really can, and for the most part, compared to what it really is, we all really do have very shallow and weak and light views of sin. But we need to see sin as the horrific monster that it really is. we got to see the sinfulness of sin. We need that. We need that in our Christian life. Now, I want us to grasp the sinfulness of sin more clearly, because God does. It's the reason He gave us the law, to see the sinfulness of sin. Also, I agree with J.C. Ryle. I think it moves us forward in holiness when we see the, the, the wickedness and wretchedness and nastiness of sin. When we really see that, it moves us forward in holiness. I think sometimes people think of the Bible as only a book that's full of a bunch of sweet little promises for us. But it's not. It's also a book, a book of threatenings. God threatens you in His Word. Mark 9 says, if your hand calls you to sin... Cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than to go to hell with two hands. That is a threat from God's word about sin to help us see the depths of the, of the sinfulness of sin. And we need, we need to see that. We need to grow that. I, I, think, I think when you see uh, the sinfulness of sin, it changes everything about your life. Do you see sin that seriously? Je Jesus says your hand goes in, cut it off. Do you see it that seriously? Do you see the consequences of it as being that detrimental to your soul? Because if you do, it does. It changes your life. It changes the way you put up guards, the way you hold yourself accountable, the way you deal with your brothers and sisters when you really see the depths of sin. I think when you're freed from shallow views of sin and you begin to see it as disgusting and as destructive as it really is, it, it does several things. It makes you zealous about killing sin at its very root or killing sin even in its even in its infant stages in other words you don't wait till sin's in the living room when it knocks at the door you murder it then it's, it's when you see the sinfulness of sin you 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 go after killing it in its infant stages James 1 verse 14 and 15 speaks about a sin beginning with desire. And desire gives birth to sin. And sin when it's full grown brings forth death. And so where do you kill it? You wait till it's about to kill you. You kill it in the desire phase. When you see the sinfulness of sin, it moves you. When, when you grasp the sinfulness of sin, you weep. You weep over it. Psalm 119, 136, it says, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men did not keep your law. When's the last time you wept over your sin or wept over the sin of your nation or wept over sin in your brothers and sisters in Christ? It causes you to weep when you see the sinfulness of it. It causes you to, to accept rebukes and corrections as a way of life. You say something like the psalmist said, he said, let the righteous strike me. It'll be a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It'll be like excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. You want it. Yes, I understand the sinfulness of sin. Come and rebuke me. Come and deal with me. It makes you, it fills you with courage when you see the sinfulness of sin to deal with your brothers and sisters in that way. You don't want them to be destroyed because you see the detriment of sin. And so you go after them. It literally changes your life. 
It causes you to worship Jesus. Worship Him with more passion, more zeal. Remember in Luke 7, you got the, um, the lady in Luke 7 that's at Jesus' feet. And she's weeping. And Jesus said, that lady loved much. Well, what was the deal? It says, because she knew she was forgiven much. She saw the sinfulness of her sin and the great forgiveness of Christ. And she wept in zeal and love and worship over Jesus Christ. It'll change your life. And so I believe we need to grow in seeing the sinfulness of sin. And examining Lot's life will help us to see the real or see sin for what it is. And let's look, let's look at some more specific aspects of the sinfulness of sin that's found in Lot's tragic, tragic life. <clears throat> the deceitfulness of sin. Start with the deceitfulness of sin there. Now I take that phrase from Hebrews 3.13. Hebrews 3.13 speaks about us exhorting one another daily. Lest anyone be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. You know that about it. Sin is tricky. It's deceitful. I want you to notice how Lot was allured. How Lot was deceived into sin. When you read Genesis 13.10. And this is where it all began. It says Lot. Genesis 13.10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. And that's where it all started. It all began with a look. Where he looks off in a, in a covetous way. And he sees something. And just a couple verses later it says. He moved his tents right next to Sodom. So first he looks and he sees it. It allures him in. That, that, the pride of possessions. That excess of, of, uh, of food. Abundance of idleness. And prosperous ease. That Ezekiel said was in Sodom. He let that draw him in with the look. And then next thing you know his tents are beside Sodom. That's in Genesis 13. You get to Genesis 14, now he's living in Sodom. You get to Genesis 19, verse 1, and he's sitting at the gates. He's literally immersed as a leader in this town of Sodom. It allured him, it drew him in until you get to our passage. And now he's sitting in a cave somewhere, walking in these incestuous sins and drunkenness. Sin has allured him. It's deceitful, it has deceived him. And it's drawn him in. Like an animal that was allured. By pleasant aromas and promises of satisfaction, only to be gutted in the end. That's it. This is how Lot was drawn in. Now, do you believe that about sin? Do you believe that sin is deceitful? Because if you do, it changes your life. If you see how deceitful it is, it changes the way you put up guards for yourself. It changes the way you deal with brothers and sisters. If you see his deceitfulness, it changes you. Do you understand how deceitful and tricky sin can be. It's so, it's so deceitful. Sin is so deceitful that it can offer up justifications for you. How often have we seen people, even maybe in yourself, have you seen you're walking in the midst of sin and yet you've justified yourself? We see that with the daughters of Lot here. They're walking in obvious sin, obvious sin. But twice in verse 32 and verse 34, they give a reason. They give a reason of justification for their sin. They say that we may preserve offspring from our father. Oh, yeah, that's a good reason for incest. It's a good reason for this sin. Satan's a master of giving you justifications for your sin. He's a master of deceiving us and making us. We're doing these things that are simple, but we think it's okay. It's okay if I cheat on that because you know it's for a greater cause, right? The deceitfulness of sin. It's so deceitful that Revelation 3.17, it says that you can actually think this. You can think, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need of nothing. All the while, actually, here's what you are. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so, and so if you believe this, that sin can do that to you, it changes the way you stand on guard. The deceitfulness of sin. Please beware of the deceitfulness of sin. What about the stupidity of sin? The stupidity of sin. Sin, sin leads you to do things that, that might seem okay to the world, but in light of the bigger picture, they are stupid. Absolutely stupid. Think about the stupidity of not trusting the maker of heaven and earth. Think about that. Maker of heaven and earth. And not trusting Him. How stupid is that? The stupidity of not believing the only wise one who has never ever been wrong. The stupidity of not fearing the one who can snap you like a twig and send you to hell forever. 
The stupidity of not obeying the one who commands angels or loving the one who loved you and gave his life for you. Of not worshiping the majestic glory. How ridiculous is this? It's the stupidity of sin. And we see this stupidity in Lot's life. We see it very clearly in his life and it stands as a warning to us. Think about it. You're thinking about Lot's life. Lot, why are you afraid? That's so dumb, Lot. Don't you know you could trust in this God that created the heavens and the earth? Why are you afraid, Lot? Lot, why are you finding joy and satisfaction and comfort in alcohol? Why are you doing that? Don't you know he's the God of all comfort? He's the source of all pleasures and joy. Why would you find it there? Lot, did you, did, you just, did you just deliver over your daughters to these perverts in Genesis? Did you do that? Have you lost your mind, Lot? You see the stupidity. The stupidity of sin. I think about it like this. God has commanded all of creation and creation bows down. He commands the stars go right there and they obey Him. He commands the sun to shine and it obeys Him. He commands the ocean, ocean stop right here. And it does exactly as He says. And He looks at me and you and says, come here. And we say, no. How ridiculous. The stupidity of sin. So we got the deceitfulness of sin, the stupidity of sin. Let's go to the destructiveness of sin. The destructiveness of sin. Now I think we saw the destructiveness of sin last week as we looked at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the way that destruction of those people points us to the eternal destruction of hell. I think we saw the destruction of sin. I hope you understand that, that, as you, that, that when God gives us this visual of people who are literally burned alive, burned until they're dead, skin coming off of their bones in agony as He pours out judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, that that's a picture of an eternal burning in hell forever and ever for sin. The Bible calls hell torment day and night forever and ever. It never ends and you'll remember every single warning you got to flee from the wrath to come. Now that shows us what? The destruction, all the destruction of sin. Do you see what it does? Do you see where it leads to? And we as Christians should be warned by that. I think sometimes we think, you know, as Christians, we shouldn't be warned about that sort of destruction or the wrath to come. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. It says, it says in those two verses, it says that we are to kill Kill sexual morality and several other sins that it tells us to kill. You know what the reason it gives that we should kill it? Because, it, because, because of those things, the wrath of God is coming. It's supposed to motivate us as Christians to flee. We should be motivated by the threats of God's word about the destruction that's coming of sin. But I would take it even, even before eternal destruction. There's even earthly destruction as it relates to sin. Look how sin in Lot's life absolutely destroyed his family. Do you see how sin in Lot's life absolutely destroyed his family? Remember the effect that it had on his wife. Lot's wife, the one who looked back because she loved the world. She looked back only to be consumed in the flames. And her wife burns in hell forever now, even now as we speak. And at least part of that is a... Is a a fruit of Lot's life of sin. Lot may have spoken worse or about God. He knew about this God. But his life miscalculated. His life spoke a different story. And it led her to hell. Or what about his children? His children have been led to destruction. His children have rebelled, rebelled against him. J.C. Rowell said this. He said this about lingering Lot. Lingering parents seldom have godly children. The eye of the child drinks in far more than the ear. The eye of the child drinks in far more than the ear. Sin has consequences. Sin is destructive. Not just, not just of, of, of eternal destruction, but of earthly destruction here and now. And that should put a fear in our souls. And we say, God, keep us from sin. Keep us from being like lingering lot here. In fact, there's a verse in Proverbs 20, verse 7. If you want to... Parents here, if you want to bless your children, you want to bless your children. Now, God has to save them. We can't make them be saved. God has to save their souls. They have to turn to Christ. But you want to bless your children? Proverbs 20, verse 7 says, A righteous man walks in his integrity, and his children are blessed after him. Integrity. What are you when nobody else is looking? When it's just only God knows, do you walk with Him in integrity? Holiness. Or is your sin having an impact on your children? 
go to the next one. The contagiousness of sin. <clears throat> Excuse me. The contagiousness of sin. I think we gotta be we gotta be careful how we allow ourselves and our families to be immersed into the sin of this world. God's word says, have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, it says that Lot tormented his soul. Listen to that phrase. Lot tormented his soul, living in Sodom and seeing all the wicked deeds and hearing all the wicked things that he heard and saw there in that place. He tormented his righteous soul. And we realize from Genesis 19 that Lot and his two daughters, they fled Sodom, but Sodom had already planted itself in their hearts. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 5 says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Proverbs 13 verse 20 It says a a companion of fools will be destroyed. A companion of fools will be destroyed. So here's this idea of the contagiousness of sin. It's vile. Like a disease. And I think Lot's life is a perfect illustration of how to disobey Psalm 1-1. Remember Psalm 1-1? says, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delights in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates all the day long. So you, you imagine that. Here, listen to this progression. It's exactly the opposite of what Lot did. Lot, he heard the counsel of the ungodly. And then he began to stand in the path of sinners. Then he began to sit at the gates and sit in the seat of scoffers. He disobeyed Psalm 1-1. His life is a warning to us. And I think it had an effect on him and on his family. So here's the question. How do we respond to that? How do we we respond to this contagiousness of sin that affected Lot and his family? And one thing I think we can say is this. We certainly don't, it's not, we don't battle this by some kind of monkish separation, right? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, it says you can't go out of the world. You can't can't just completely leave sinful people because then you would have to go out of the world. And you can't go out of the world. That's not the idea. But I do think it's a warning for us to beware of unnecessary immersion in this world. Beware of worldliness being, being wrapped up in worldliness and worldliness and planting itself in you. And in fact, I would give this advice about the contagiousness of sin. Have you ever heard a, 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 good, de- a good offense is a good defense? Or Somebody help me. How do I say that? The best offense is a good defense. You ever heard that? Well, I think it's the other way sometimes. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean, put yourself around godly people that are burning with passion for Him. Hebrews 3.13, it says, Exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Put yourself around exhorters. Hebrews 10.24 says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but exhort one another. So much the more as you see the day approaching. Put yourself around godly, hot for Christ, men and women. Put yourself around that. Proverbs 13, verse 20, it says, it, it speaks about, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. So one way to battle the contagiousness of sin is not to remove yourself from the world, but put yourself in the midst of the church where people are loving Christ and walking with God. One guy said it like this. He said, a hot coal sustains its heat when surrounded by hot coals. But when the hot coal is isolated, it becomes cold. It becomes cold. All right, let's go to the false promises of sin. False promises of sin. This is how sin grabs people. Sin grabs people by making promises that it cannot keep. And hear me out on that. Sin makes promises to you. Sin is making promises to you right now. And when you walk out of this, this room today, sin is going to make promises to you that it can't keep. It can't keep. Think about Genesis 13. Lot looked up and he said he saw a land. And listen, it says this phrase, as the garden of God. Oh, he looks up and it made a promise it couldn't keep. That covetous look. Look, it's like, it's like the garden of God and I can have it. And next thing you know, Genesis 19, he's dwelling in a cave somewhere in the hills with death and destruction all around him. It makes promises that it cannot and will not keep. Sin is like honey on the lips, but it's bitter 
in the belly. Sin promises joy, satisfaction, fulfillment. But don't take the bait. It's just luring you into something that it cannot give you. In fact, only Christ. Christ alone can give you satisfaction and joy and peace and happiness in Him. Let's keep going to the fruitlessness of sin. I think one of the greatest fears, tell me, tell me if you agree with me, I think one of the greatest fears of every Christian is that he would live a fruitless life. I think one of the greatest fears of every Christian is that he or she would just waste your life. Say, I don't want to waste my life. How many of you prayed that and said, Oh God, let me bear fruit for the glory of your name. Don't let me waste my life, Lord. How many of you prayed that sort of prayer? Well, Lot's sin made him a fruitless man. Made him a man that wasted his life. Jesus said, John 15, 5, Whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. And Lot did none of those things. He didn't abide in Christ. He didn't abide in God. He didn't bear much fruit. Think about it. He lived in the midst of one of the most godless cities on the planet with zero converts. He lived there with his wife and his wife goes astray. She's in, she, she, she rejects God. His, his, his own daughters, his own children walk away from God. Imagine the rest of his family. We know from earlier places in Genesis that he had many people in his family that were there in Sodom. All of them died in destruction. Just a fruitless, fruitless wife. He wasted, he, he wasted his life. Beware of the fruitlessness of sin. What about the vileness of sin? The vileness of sin. Now we know that the sin that's described that we just read about in chapter 19, verse 30 through 38, it's vile. You read it, I read it, it's vile and it's despicable. You know that. You felt uncomfortable even hearing it read. But it stands as a reminder to us that all sin has vile and despicable and shameful potential. All sin has that. It began somewhere with Lot. His sin began somewhere. This is where he lands in Genesis 19. But the potential was way back in 13 with that covetous look. These mass shootings that we've seen, these vile sins, Hitler and all his deeds, these vile sins, they all have their beginning somewhere in some so-called smaller sin. It's a warning to us that sin has vile potential, all of it. Now, am I taking that too far? Am I just overreacting? And I hope you see that I'm not. I'm not taking it too far. Vile and heinous crimes, just like this, just like Hitler and all that he did, it all begins somewhere. In other words, Hitler was not an anomaly. He was not an anomaly. In fact, all of us had the potential within us, without God's restraining hand, to do things that make Hitler look like a choir boy. Every single one of us. Now, am I overreacting? Or do you believe that? That that's the truth? And if you do, you think about the way that changes, the way you go after killing sin, even in its infant stages. Look at the vileness that can come from it. Look at it in Genesis 19, the despicable nature of what can come out of sin. Oh, it should make you hate it. And thank God for His restraining hand in this world. Now, I think a lot of people, when they hear me say something like that, they, 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 make, they make Peter's mistake. You know what Peter's mistake was? Oh, Lord, I never deny you. I never deny you. All them, they might all deny you, but, but I, I will never deny you, Lord. Let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Grace you be to church, brothers and sisters, take heed. Take heed lest you fall. Let's go lastly to the ramifications of sin. Now, I think it's, it's a very purposeful thing that this passage mentions the Moabites and the Ammonites and that they were a result of this sinful union. Okay? I think that was very on purpose in Genesis chapter 19. And when you see what the rest of the Bible teaches about the Moabites and the Ammonites, you realize that this is a lesson in the terrible ramifications and consequences of sin. You see, the Moabites and the Ammonites will go on to become an absolute terror to God's people. 
They will become an absolute terror to God's people. They'll do it in wars and strife. As you keep reading through the Bible, in a moral decline, leading into immorality, these nations will be a thorn in the side of God's people, Israel. Abraham has no idea that what's happening in that cave right now, the sin that's going down in that cave right now, is going to have an effect on his descendants for all their days. Sin has ramifications, it has consequences. And I believe this is a vivid reminder to us of the horrible consequences of sin, sin, even in this life, even the consequences in this life. A commentator named Derek Kidner, he says this, he mentions two of the major consequences that came from the Moabites and Ammonites, therefore came from this sinful union. He says this, <clears throat> Lot's legacy, Moab and Ammon, was destined to provide Number one, the worst carnal destruction in the history of Israel. And number two, the cruelest religious perversion. And if you dig into what he's talking about, the, the, the worst carnal destruction in the history of Israel is when Balak, the king of Moab, remember, sends out those prostitutes to lure those people into sexual morality. And that's where the, the false god Baal came from. So we read about this false god that tempts and leads astray through sexual morality, the people of Israel, all through the Bible. And guess where it all began? It all began in the cave. A simple, incestuous, drunken sin. That's where it all started. Then he says the cruelest religious perversion came out. He's speaking about Molech, the false god Molech, where you would literally sacrifice your children. Imagine it. Sacrifice your children to this false god, Malek. God seems to especially have hated this, this perversion. He hated it. In one place in Jeremiah, he says, It did not even enter into my mind that people would do this. Now, how did the infinite God say something like that? He especially hated it. And guess where it all came out of? It all came out of a cave. Ramification of Lot's sin. Now I think this is a, a sober reminder that sin does not just affect us, but it affects other people. It has ramifications and consequences that move past us into other people's lives of grief and pain and agony. These are fruits of sin, and we need to know that. Do you believe, do you really believe that sin has consequences like that? Because if you do, it will change the way you live. It will change the way you fight it. Do you believe it really has consequences like that? So, with all these things in mind, Lot's life, and especially that last episode, being a lesson to us of how, of how despicable and simple and wicked and wretched and dangerous sin is, with that in mind, Grace Community Church, let's hate sin. Let's hate it. Let's make war on it at every place. Let's leave no stone unturned, but walk in holiness and kill sin. Go after it with everything that we've got, holiness in Christ Jesus. But I want to take it a step further. Just a step further. What about shameful sins that have already been committed? What about shameful sins already committed? You think about Lot? Surely Lot felt some deep, deep shame and guilt here, right? In the following days, or really the following weeks and months, what does he have to see? He sees his daughter's pregnant. It's shameful. Shameful. In the following years, those little boys grow up that eventually become the Moabites and Ammonites, and he has to explain to them, how are you grandfather and dad? How are you both? It's shameful. You imagine the shame that's here. And I, and I wonder something. I wonder if, if that's going on in here. I, I think about the shame and the guilt on my brothers and sisters in this room. Do you have that? Do you deal with shame over sin, some shameful thing in your past, or maybe even more recently, and you're dealing with the guilt of it? Do you have that? And man, I want to help you. I want to help you with the shame and the guilt of sin. My heart goes out to you. That I want you to find, I want you to find peace and rest in Christ. I want you to be freed from the shame and the guilt of being loaded down with sin. And so that brings us to that last question on your study guide. How does a Christian deal with the shame of sin? How does a Christian deal with the shame of sin? Number one, repent. There's no way around it. 
There are millions of inventions of how to get out of shame and guilt of sin without repenting. Whether it be drugs, alcohol, whatever it might be. Something to get me out of this shame without repenting. But you can't. There's no way around it. You must repent. Repentance is not a one-time event that happens in the life of a Christian. Repentance is an ongoing process for the Christian throughout their lives. You must repent. Repentance is an inward turn to God and away from sin. And it also has external results that you can see. Let me read a passage to you in 2 Corinthians Chapter 7. You must repent to rid yourself of shame and guilt. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces Death. So here's what we're talking about. A godly grief over sin that leads to repentance. Well, what does it look like? Verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. That's what has to happen. Are you dealing? Are you loaded down with shame and guilt of past sin or recent sin? You must repent. You have to repent. This clearing of yourself. I'm coming out of this with some zeal. I want to come away from this sin into the arms of Christ. Proverbs 28 verse 13. It says, he who conceals his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses it and forsakes it will have mercy. And remember, I'm saying that to be a help to anybody here dealing with the shame of sin. Whoever, whoever hides his sin will not prosper. You will not move past it. But whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. Second thing I want to say to you is to brace yourself for any consequences. To brace yourself. Sin has earthly consequences and there's no way around it. We see that from Lot's life. We see that in David's life. David repented of what he did with Bathsheba and yet still faced the consequences of it with the death of his son. He still faced that. Dealing with shame and the guilt of sin will not be a smooth road. But there are hard things to come. Guilt and, excuse me, the consequences don't just disappear. But it doesn't mean you have to have shame and guilt right in the midst of it. So brace yourself for consequences. And here's the last thing. And this is what I really want to say to you. I want you to be encouraged that God redeems even the messiest, the messiest of situations. And I wonder if you believe that. That our God is a God who, who redeems even the worst, even the most wretched, even the wicked, even the messiest of situations. Our God redeems those things. Now I can give that to you in a single verse. Romans 8, 28. That, that all things work together for good for those who love God, those who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. You see, God works all things for the Christian out for good. Or I could give you Genesis 50, verse 20, where you had this evil of a young boy was sold into slavery by wicked brothers who pretended his death. And God says this about it. He says that what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. He can take the most wretched of situations, miserable situations, and He can redeem them for your good and for, his, and for His glory. Now, I think you see the same idea. You say, why am I saying that? Because I think you see the same idea in this passage of Scripture in Genesis 19, verse 30 through 38. You say, how in the world could this be redeemed? How could that incestuous, drunken, Sin that we just read. How can that be redeemed as a situation that is that is ultimately for His glory? So let me explain. Anybody here know what a tributary is? You know what a tributary is? Yes, that's uh, I think. <laughs> Try it. Imagine these streams or these rivers that come into one major main river. This a major river that empties itself into the ocean. And these tributaries that these rivers and streams that feed into a main river that is the main river that takes it out to the ocean. Here's what I want you to think about. The Amazon is considered by many to be the most magnificent river on the planet. 
And it's certainly one of the largest ones, especially if you think about how much water it dumps into the ocean. It is massive, glorious creation of God, the Amazon River. Now, the Amazon River has over over a thousand tributaries that pour into it. I, I believe from 12 different countries that pour into the Amazon River. I want you to think about the mighty Amazon River as Christ Jesus, as the symbol of Christ Jesus the Lord. And I want you to think about those tributaries as the lineages and the, 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 the uh, genealogies that, that lead up to the birth of Christ. That river, the Amazon of Christ, and all the different lengths of family trees that, that come in to the Christ who would be born. I want you to think about the tributaries and the main river Christ, the living river, like that. Now as you think about those lineage uh, uh, tributaries of Christ Jesus. Now surely his family tree would be filled with holy men and women. I mean godly men and women. I mean prestigious and noble and, and glorious, sinless, perfect men and women. And Christ would come through them, right? Wrong. It's wrong. In fact, if you read the lineages and the genealogies of the Old Testament that lead to Christ, you see that his family tree is full of scoundrels and, and wicked and evil men and women. And yet this is a lesson for us that God redeems even the messiest of situations, even the messiest of circumstances. Now, let me let me tell you more of what I mean about Jesus's lineage or those tributaries that go into that River. Take Adam and Eve, for example. They plunge the world into sin and darkness. And then God promises them, through you is coming one that's going to crush Satan's head. God redeemed that wicked situation. Well, what about Noah? Noah was a man at the end of his life and we see him walking in drunkenness. And yet through Noah's lineage, God redeemed that situation. And here comes the Christ through him. We've been reading about Abraham. And we know there's a lot of good and examples to take away. But we see a lot of evil in Abraham's life. Yet God is going to use that for his glory. God's going to use that to bring about the Christ. Redeem that messy life. Now it gets worse. Think about Judah and Tamar who had a baby named Perez in Genesis 38. You see, Judah was promised that through him, see, you had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob had Judah, and Judah, through Judah's coming to Christ. Where's that child going to come from? In that lineage, in that genealogy. And you see, Tamar acts like a prostitute, and Judah actually buys her as a prostitute, and through the baby from that sinful union comes a child that would eventually come to Christ. God redeems the messiest of situations. What about David and Bathsheba? David looks on this woman and steals another man's wife. And then when he's going to find out about each other, he murders the man. And God takes that messy situation. And out of that, that sinful union, eventually comes Solomon. And through Solomon's coming to Christ, God redeems the messiest of situations. And you see that exact same thing in Genesis 19, verse 30 through, 30 through 38. Here come the Moabites and the Ammonites and they're coming through this sinful union. How could this situation, this, this whole sinful situation, how could it be redeemed? Well, there was a Moabite named Ruth. And you can go read about the, in the book of Ruth how Ruth got married to Boaz and through them came a son through whom eventually would come the Christ. You get the genealogy in the book of Ruth. And Solomon had a son named Rehoboam through whom would come the Christ. And guess who Rehoboam's mom was? She was an Ammonite. So here you got the Moabites and the Ammonites redeeming this situation, this messy situation. God does that. He can do that. And he does do that. And he brings about the Christ through these peoples. Now, if you need, just in closing, if you need a, a clear, a more clear example of that, I would point you to the cross. You think about the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the most shameful thing that humans have ever done. To reject and crucify the Son of God who came to save. He came to His own people and His own people rejected Him. The greatest injustice that has ever happened is that the spotless Lamb of God was hung, was killed, was murdered at the cross. And yet God takes that crucifixion in the, in the most despicable moment, the messiest situation on planet earth. And God takes that and He redeems the people to Himself because He was there to die for sinners like me and you. 
God can redeem. And I want you to be encouraged, especially if you're dealing with the shame and guilt of sin. I want you to be encouraged that God can redeem even the messiest of situations. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word and this time in your word. God, I pray that you help us to see the sinfulness of sin. God, help us to see the sinfulness, the danger, the destructiveness of sin. God, help us to see it in such a way that it causes us to kill sin in its infant stages, God, to, to kill it at pride, to kill it at selfishness, to kill it at anger, to kill it at strife between husband and wife, God, or frustration towards children. God, please give us a hatred for sin and teach us to make war. Lord, thank you for the example of Lot's life. God, help us to take heed. Please protect us from the pride of thinking that we'd never be that way. We'd never do those things, Lord. You, you told us if we think we stand, take heed lest we fall. Please, God, help us to do that. Give us a soberness about sin all across this church. All throughout our church, God, give us a real soberness about the sinfulness of sin. And God, I praise you, Lord. That you ultimately showed that, Lord, and that sin to be done away with, it took the destruction of Jesus Christ for it to be done away with, Lord. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, that when we see our sin, God, and we aim to kill it, that we can, we can run to the cross. We, we can run to where your blood was poured out, where your blood was shed. And we can trust you, Lord. You said that whoever believes in you would not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you for your promise. God, if there's any here that are dealing with the shame and the guilt of sin, Lord, I pray that you would give them true repentance if you haven't already. God, I pray that you would help them to endure the consequences that follow, knowing that you are a good father to them. And God, I pray that you help them to be encouraged that you work all things for good. All things for good. For those who love you and those who are the called according to your purpose, God, encourage their souls. In Jesus' name. Amen.